Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. And the only reason I'm here today is because I love the way I sound when I'm ill. My voice gets a deeper resonant sound to it. I am the legendary Burl Bear, True Crime Uncensored, produced by Magic Matt Allen. Howard Lapidus. Yeah, we're going to send you back to disc jockey school. Yeah, manager of the star. Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker. Thank you. No, I'm not kidding about this, sending you back to disc jockey school. Why? Did I forget to give the uh, station ID and the time of the temperature? No, no. We, we never give the temperature. Oh. It's 85 degrees. And don't wait when you see me to oh. huh. Thanks. Mark's playing the hits now. He's got to that far. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've just, it's just been a matter of time for me, seriously. I need to get you your own jingle for you soon. What the hell was that? <laughs> He's going to have his own jingle. He this really is supposed was. to be the world's most popular true this crime is in show. Fact, it sounds like garbage. No, no. This is, the, this is in fact, and we uh, uh, get us a world book of records. Yeah, it is. We are, in fact, uh, the, the best. The best. Uh, the most the best. wonderful. Listened to. The most listened to and uh, fourth Mocked. Derided. Oh, we're mocked all the time. While drinking Guinness. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, no, no. Mocked. Mocked I go for. I let the yeah. others mock us because that just drives this audience. Yeah. We have the biggest audience in true crime radio. <laughs> you know, our audience is very similar to Dixie's husband. <laughs> Oh, oh, is that your that's your, that's your rotting corpse? That is what you used as a transition. As a transition? Yeah. Oh Dixie's, man, Dixie's dead husband. Was, no, no. Our guest what? is going to go home. Yeah. Dixie's dead husband was left in the couple's bedroom for a total of fourteen months. She kills the guy. Pardon me while I shut the door. She shuts the door. Don't open that door. I hear you knocking, but you can't come in. John Farrick, you wrote the book. You know the story. Are you yeah, still with <laughs> Welcome back. Well, yeah, welcome back, John. We loved your previous book. This one, we're a bit concerned. This I, woman's got a screw loose. Uh, a screw <laughs> loose. Hey, John, how's it going, Howard? Great, yeah, great. Anyway, thanks, but, for, thanks again for uh, letting me come back on the show, guys. Uh, before pleasure, before we get going, John, were you happy with the Packers pick? Um, yeah, actually, I, I felt that uh, for the first round, uh, we need to get uh, better at uh, defensive back since they lost Williams. So uh, so I got my fingers crossed that Randall's going to be a decent uh, pick for them. It sounds like they may move him back to cornerback. I think he played safety the last two years. I think you know what? I despise sports. Let's get back to sports. <laughs> <laughs> see, see, I know I could go the whole show. Here, here. I, I my producer I, agrees with me. Sports are for wimps. Oh, Let's yeah. Talk crime. We could have done the whole show on the, on the draft. Yeah, it's getting windy in here already. He's got Green Bay. I've got Buffalo. We would have talked all day. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Our audience would dwindle rap as if it's that's, overwhelming That's not now. true. No. Hey, you want to do a sports show? Go to KJRAM. Uh, <laughs> Dixie's last stand. Apparently, she could stand the smell more than anything. Uh, John, will you please uh, give us the backstory on on this story that you wrote about in your book? Because it's too weird sure. for me. Sure. Uh, well, the, the background on the whole deal is that Scott Shanahan, who's a little runt uh, from uh, Defiance, Iowa, was despised by most of the people around the town borough. Um, the guy was a homebody, a jerk. And uh, really didn't work at all, except uh, the only thing he did, uh, usually when he woke up uh, by early afternoon, was just go across the street. He had a, he had a garage uh, across the street where he just 
repaired uh, old old cars and uh, and uh, some farm tractors occasionally too. This was not a job. This was not uh, you know uh, to make a lot of money. It was just about the only thing that he liked to do besides um, beat the crap out of his wife Dixie. Now, what, what, and, what, wait a second, John. What what was it about this near do well, which sounds like a compliment in his case? What was it about him that his beloved wife found so enchanting that she couldn't wait to plight her fealty or whatever it was she was plighting to him? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. The thing is, they started dating when they were 15 or, well, when she was about 15 or 16, she moved into this this house, um, which is ultimately where the murder is going to happen 20 years or so later, Burl. But, uh, but they started dating when she was about 15 or 16. He's a few years older than her, and she just stuck with this guy. So, uh, so um, that was all she just, knew. Yeah. yeah, it was all she, again, real, real small town. You talk a town of 350 people, Burl, so uh, um, the pickings are kind of slim. Um, it, you know, and um, if you don't get out of town, that is, and uh, and in this case, you know, Dixie stuck with Scott Shanahan through thick and thin. Um, there were signs of violence and outbursts when she was a teenager with him, and um, and uh, she was willing to tolerate that and stuck with him. And uh, they eventually uh, got married and started having children, and then uh, you know, just life spiraled downward for her uh, um, because he was just very abusive, mean, violent, and liked to beat the crap out of her. Well, everyone needs a hobby, and apparently repairing small small farm machinery wasn't, uh, you know, sufficient for it. I thought you were going to say uh, apparently killing people and let them rot for 14 months. <laughs> well, you know, she, she had a long time no, to catch up. That was an avocation. Yeah. Thanks, so, Mark. You're welcome. You're, okay. So for 20-some years, she puts up with this guy beating the crap out of her. Um, yeah, it's... Uh it's, yeah, that's about right. I was, I was trying to go off of memory when they started dating, and I think it was uh, um, early 1980s, 83, 84, and uh, I think they get married around 94, 95. But, but the, and abuse, then, uh, the abuse started probably not long after, this is just a guess, but knowing how this stuff works, it, didn't, it wasn't long after they started dating for crying out loud. Right. There were situations where, she, you know, he would throw a chair. I remember one time, I, I documented this in the book, but, uh, you know, she, he went to a bar in the neighboring town and uh, didn't want to drive home because the cops were circling the downtown around bar close time. She goes down there uh, to try to find him, can't find him. Somehow he gets a ride home anyway and just goes berserk on her and his own mom to the point where he actually flings a chair uh, at Dixie and uh, misses her, but that just shows you, you know, how violent uh, this guy was. From, so he was not only on his wife, but on his own mother. Oh, yeah, that's what's even yeah more uh, disheartening, Burl. Um, his mom uh, was uh, was the recipient of a lot of abuse, and, and again, in a real, real small town like this, um, the mother did everything she could to make sure that nobody you know knew about this and stuff like that. She didn't want the town knowing that her oh, own... Oh, no, it would ruin you know, someone's reputation. But uh, after you get a, a chair slung at you, don't you kind of hold the catering plans at the wedding? <laughs> You got me. I just, uh, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot about the case that uh, Dixie is going to ultimately become her own worst enemy by sticking with this guy. And there's going to be several situations over the years where um, the police get involved and, and, uh, and they come out, come in and make an arrest, bring the guy, haul him off to jail. And the case is going to be uh, moving through the court system. And, and it seems like almost every time, guys, Dixie's going to be the one that's going to come to his defense, write the prosecutor a letter, you know, begging him not to, uh, uh, well, say, I, begging him to drop charges. Who will take care of him? Who will take care of him if you put him in prison? 
<laughs> the guy in cell block B. Yeah. I've seen it before. You know, the same people who get a restraining order say, wait, 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 wait. But who will take care of him if he gets in trouble for beating me up? It's, See, you know, and, it's, and in this case, the one, the one, I remember one of the letters Dixie writes to the to the court was along the lines of, um, you know, um, I need to get him out of jail because uh, you know, I want to have our family back together again. So, so he, he apparently was the missing component of the yeah. family. Uh, yeah. uh, one big happy bruised family. Yeah, he comes in a Santa suit. You know, it's a it's a happy time. Happy time. And it, was there? This is Mark. Was there any evidence that he uh, abused the children? Um, no, no, I'm not aware. Of it. And again, the children were very, very small at the time. I think the third child, uh, um, she was pregnant. She had just gotten pregnant with him um, right before, um, you know, he gets uh, murdered. But uh, no, but but there were statements though where he had uh, he told other people that he was just uh, angry as hell when he found out that she was pregnant. And there were allegations that he. Uh, you know, threatened her, tried to beat her, or did beat her, you know, at times that she was pregnant with some of the kids' guys. So. Oh, God, he's a real sweetheart, this guy. You know, if she didn't often, the three of us here in the room might have, uh, you know, gone down there and taken care of him. No, I, I, I wouldn't have done that. Uh, Matt, would you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. shakes his cigar, that's a good sign. I don't, I don't travel well. So. No, you, don't, you don't travel well, yeah, you and some wines. Okay. <laughs> He was a little guy, too, but the thing is that he, he was very intimidating. I remember uh, uh, some of the people that lined up to testify eventually. I mean, he showed up one time at the village hall right down the street. Again, town of 350 people. And, and I guess he just showed up there like the devil and just clenched his, um, clenched his teeth and uh, was just fuming at the, at the town clerk because of the fact that his water, you know, his utilities had been shut off. Because he hadn't been paying the bills for like two or three months and yeah, stuff they'll, like that. They'll so, do that, yeah. Um, but again, that's just the kind of guy he was. People that had uh, interactions with him, for the most part, uh, um, left him alone and uh, um, you know just uh, just didn't want anything to do with him. You know what? And this that probably plays a factor in why nobody notices that he's gone. Uh, you know, by this, the time this reminds me of Harry McLean's. Uh, story about the town bully that finally gets murdered and no one will, no one will say who did it because <laughs> they were all yeah, happy the guy Skidmore, was gone. Yeah, the Skidmore, the Skidmore, Missouri case, yeah. I think, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. I was thinking about that before the show that maybe uh, yeah, you'd uh, bring that up. Uh, it, there are some similar similarities along those lines where nobody in the town, um, I should say very few people in the town you know, um, no really one was sad him. about this except him, right. of course. Yeah. How do you get, how, yeah. how do you get a yeah. how do you get a jury of your peers in that town? Well, the thing was is that uh, I thought that it would be really really hard to get a jury just because of all the publicity about the case. But uh, ultimately, the thing, and I always forgot about the Subaru, but it was never a case of who did it. Dixie, you know, took a. Uh, her, her defense was going to be justification, self-defense. So, so from that standpoint, it was fairly easy to pick a jury because essentially all everybody had to do was just kind of, uh, you know, promise that they were going to be open-minded and, and hear the evidence and come back with an impartial verdict. Uh, um, so, uh, so from that standpoint, it wasn't uh, difficult. And remind, and I got to remind you guys too, it's the defense that wants to have. A local jury, so so uh, so it's usually the defense that asks for having a trial moved to a different town or county. But in this case, 
the defense wanted to have the case uh, in their backyard, so to speak. Yeah, because uh, everyone knew that, the guy was a jerk. Right, exactly, exactly. Thinking it was going to go down the, the way that they had, uh, the, the way they had hoped. Well, it doesn't look good for her, however, that she kills him and then shuts the door on the body and leaves it there to rot for 14 months. Uh, the whole thing, I mean, and plus she hooks up with some other dude. Tell us about that. Well, um, yeah, that's kind of what I, I, that was one of the factors too, Burl, that that's going to eventually get some eyes, eyebrows raised around town and at least with the small town sheriff's agency right down the road. Because uh, you get in a town of 350 people, people start to notice this guy named Jeff Duty uh, showing up uh, at uh, Scott Shanahan's house and he's staying there every weekend. Um, in in 2003, from about Memorial Day weekend on, so uh, so people around town are starting to wonder. Geez, this doesn't seem right. To, you know, Scott Shanahan, who's been in this town forever, um, had grown up in this house. He's missing, and yet now there's another guy sleeping at his house with Dixie every weekend, and and apparently he's not going to notice or care. I mean, uh, there would have been. Two dead bodies uh, at that yeah, house. How, how did uh, they pick the, been one of them. <laughs> how did they pick the bed they'd sleep in? Is my question. Yeah, why can't we um, do it in the master bedroom? Well, actually, they slept on. A, a Jeff Duty and, uh, and Dixie wound up staying, uh, sleeping in, in one of the other guest rooms or, 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 or a couch or whatever. But I remember he's going to testify. Obviously, that's a huge question when the case goes to trial. How you know? Geez, you've been staying at the house five or six months. How do you not know that, uh, why do you not go in that bedroom? And he testified that, uh, that he just assumed that there was a lot of abuse back there with, with you know, Dixie. So he just uh, uh, just assumed she didn't want anything to do with that room. And uh, Well, right again on all counts. Mm-hmm. It's just that uh, the abuse was reversed this time. <laughs> and, uh, um, there's something right, about so, his corpse uh, that brings back bad memories. Yeah. Yeah, that's the, sto- that's the story he gave, and uh, in the, uh, I remember the sheriff's office said they did some research, and they never found any uh, evidence that he somehow knew about this or had anything, uh, you know, any inside knowledge. How do you not, hey, John, John, seriously, how, how do you not smell a dead body at, over at the chick's house? I... I wasn't there. I I, I, had, I would be asking the same damn question. The thing is, is that uh, she had put... Um, a long bath towel underneath the main bedroom door. So, uh, so when the police even got to the house, they did not smell anything bad, um, you know, in the hallway. Another thing, too, guys. Not only did she have those towels there, but there was there was a couple of air fresheners and candles also right outside the door in that hallway. So, hallway has towels blocking the the you know the door. And it also has candles and air fresheners right there as well. There's nothing like um, a good coconut candle and a dead body <laughs> yeah. to make for a good romantic evening. Wasn't the bedroom oh, window open now? No, no. Uh, well, the window, um, the the uh, one of the bedroom windows was open uh, um, the previous winter, which you essentially would have been um, about four or five, well, three or four months after the murder had happened. And um, and that's what obviously caught the attention of the the town's uh, meter reader because uh, it's middle winter time, Iowa, ten degrees, twenty degrees, snow all over the place, and you see a window cranked wide open. Um, it kind of causes you to raise your eyebrows, and uh, so he remembered that, and he remembered that it was like that way for the next four or five months too. And by summertime, though, guys, the window apparently is shut. 
Now, I'm thinking the same thing, too. I'm thinking, gee, she must have went back in there. But apparently it was one of those windows that all, you, you could shut it from the outside. Ah. But uh, so by the time the body is found, the windows aren't closed. But nonetheless, let's assume, guys, the window served its purpose for those first four to seven months or so that uh, Scott's by. body was starting to decay. Yeah, plus, uh, Mark just made an interesting point. With that cold with the window open, that kind of, you know, frozified or at least chilled out the corpse. Correct, yeah. And um, and, and, and she pulled the covers, too, over uh, over his body. So uh, well, That was um, nice. That was respectful. Um, so that's the thing, though. You get to the point where it's 14 months after the fact, and finally the, the sheriff's agency had, had exhausted any and all other resources as far as uh, kind of where Scott Shanahan may, may be, and they get that search warrant, um, and uh, and finally they go into that room, and that room literally looks exactly the same way it did, you know, 14 months earlier when she shot and killed him. So from the law enforcement standpoint, guys, you know, that's what that's what's crucial for the prosecution. Well, the crime scene, the crime scene looks exactly the same, yeah. Crime scene was immaculately preserved, as was the corpse. Mm-hmm. Guy's name, yeah, Scott Shanahan, sounds like the morning man in Des Moines. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a football coach. <laughs> uh, wait, why no? The morning man in Des Moines was the joke, Mark. <laughs> I didn't need anything else on top of that. Uh, I'm all radio school of broadcasting. <laughs> oh, God, what a case. I got a question for you. We were discussing okay. before before you came on the air, and, and no one had brought this up. What if the roles have been reversed here? What if uh, it was the male part was female and the female was male? What if a guy had done this? Is this the Bruce Jenner case? Yeah, Bruce Jenner case. Yeah. Um, boy, so, so, so you, you want to ask me along the lines of whether if, if, if Dixie's the one that's dead and, and she was left in that bed for 14 months, how this case may have turned out then? Yeah. Um, well, I think that uh, I think it would have been a, a slam dunk case from the get go, and there would not have been. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, he would have been he would have been vilified, and uh, Iowa does not have a death penalty, so uh, I mean, he would have been found guilty and uh, sentenced to life in prison, and uh, and and certainly a lot of the domestic violence advocates that came to Dixie's defense at the time of her trial, there would probably be five times as many as well. But nonetheless, there was an incredible amount of domestic violence advocates around the country that did come to her defense after she was charged with the murder. So. Yeah, but well, the, well, the town came up with her bail. Yeah, you're right. Uh, that's a good point. Um, yeah, they uh, they were uh, they had little jugs at uh, at the at the town tavern and the gas station and uh, you know and other places like that, and uh, and bailed her out of jail while she while she waited to go to trial. So uh, that's, well, that's because the guy needed killing to begin with. Isn't there a law in Texas? Yeah, that's what I'm referring to. Yeah, he needed killing. <laughs> hey John, so what 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 glued you to this case that you felt you know this is something to be written yeah. about? Well well it's kind of interesting too guys. At that time I, I had just started I think uh two days earlier I had just taken a job at the um Omaha newspaper and I had started out there as a as a reporter and covered Nebraska and western Iowa and uh like I said, my second day on the job uh a little news story comes over the Associated Press wire about um Woman in Defiance, Iowa, charged with murder. Uh, authorities say that uh, that her husband had been missing for 14 months, and uh, it was found in the 
it was found in the bedroom. So, uh, so just that intrigue alone, um, the fact that this happened uh, in a little town, 350 people, uh, that uh, pretty much never, ever has murder, and the fact that this guy was missing, that's the first thing I was really interested in, Burl, is how in the world can a guy like that go missing in a town of 350 people and nobody, no you know, no, nobody noticed? No one no, cared. Maybe, that, let me try this one on. Maybe he, maybe he wasn't dead the whole time. Maybe he was the one oh, in a month. <laughs> I, it, was, it was pretty clear that, uh, that uh, uh, I, I remember from covering the trial and uh, seeing the, the photos and everything. He was he taking like, the, the 14-month dirt dab. He was gone, right? Yeah, he was. Okay. Uh, he, I mean, there was still a little bit. Uh, of, there was just a small amount of flesh left on him, but uh, but they needed to use uh, dental records and that kind of stuff uh, um, to get identified. Yeah. I mean, as I pointed out in the book, when they did the autopsy, uh, guys, um, he weighed forty-one pounds, um, and uh, I think in, in life he was about one hundred fifty pounds. But uh, I think they had to use. Uh, they had to be very very careful to move his body or what was left of his body off of the bed to do the autopsy because, uh, again, there was still some flesh that was left there. And they wanted to preserve it as much as possible because of the fact, again, the crime scene being immaculate, there was a hole through the back of his skull and wadding from a shotgun uh, shell. So now, now, what, now, she used a shotgun to, to kill him. Did she use the proper gauge? Uh, no, and, uh, and and that, again, I, I think kind of goes to the uh, question of uh, premeditation. Um, um, she didn't know how to handle guns. Uh, I mean, he was a, he was kind of a, um, a gun nut and had a share of pistols and um, rifles and shotguns and stuff like that. But, uh, but I'm going off of memory here, but I think it was a 16-gauge shotgun, but, uh, but, the, but it was a 20-round that was, was found in the back of his head. And there was a 12-gauge or or, yeah, round that was jammed uh, still in the, in the, in the, in so the shotgun. So she, she didn't know what she was doing, but she knew what she wanted to do, which was kill him. Right. And, uh, yeah, and obviously, obviously uh, you know, she approached him and, uh, from behind and um, you know, was able to put that shotgun right up to the back of his head. Uh, Mark and blow him away. Yeah. Mark has a question for you. Um, one of the things in, in researching for the show is that, that I didn't quite follow. Um, he has a 16 gauge. He knows how to use it. So he ha- obviously had to have proper shells in the house somewhere. Yeah. Right. And so he's I'm thinking thr- that's he's, probably the case. So, um, but he, but again, I yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if he just had them all in one box or if he had three boxes all all around scattered around the house. But yeah. nonetheless, um, the, the shells that Dixie puts in there, um, presumably just two, she put the 12 gauge uh, or I'm sorry, 20 round in there. And uh, and and the uh, and the twelve as well, but yeah, the so twenty I'm, is the one. Yeah. So I'm trying to figure out where the odd gauge shells would have come from if he didn't have another weapon of those gauges. Yeah. Did he have a twenty a twenty one gauge shotgun? A twenty odd or a... I I don't. At one point in time, he had several um, several different uh, shotguns, and uh, several of those were taken away from him. Um, or confiscated okay. uh, um, oh. by the authorities for a previous domestic violence arrest that he had, guys. Okay, so, so that, that, um, was the that, that, that clears was that good. one up. Okay, good. Thank you. <laughs> that was yeah. a good question, Mark. That was a good answer, John. See, you know your own book. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Um, 
the, he was arrested three times for domestic violence. Correct. Uh, two yep. days and four days in jail. But the third time is pivotal, pivotal in Dixie's case. What happened there? Well, that was the case, really, that, uh, that the prosecutor and the sheriff's office really thought that he was going to get sent away for good because it was a felony. It had finally reached a felony level, and he could have uh, um, received at least five years uh, well, for that. Well, well, he, he gets nothing because what's going to happen is Dixie's going to move down to Texas. What did he do move down to, to get arrested? Well, Dixie moves down to Texas for a while uh, to try to start a new life, start her life over down there. And um, and while she's down there, she has a change of heart and decides that she's not going to pro- or not going to testify um, against him if the case goes to trial. And the prosecution needed her at that point in time to. Uh, um, yeah, to, to be their to be their witness, and uh, she wrote she wrote the prosecutor and, and the judge, and just said um, that she's not going to come back, and um, she's not going to participate. So the prosecutor uh, apparently has no other choice but to drop the case against him, right. and uh, and that was just again a, a real downer for the for the authorities because they thought they'd be able to get him out of their town now, um, you know, and they have a solid case against him as well, but uh, but nonetheless. The prosecution on the best chance they have to send this guy away and uh, get him, get him, uh, get him out of the town and give Dixie a chance at a new life. Um, she she kind of blows it, and, uh, yeah, and then no, not only that, she was really she, hooked into this, wasn't she? And then she's going to come back. So, uh, so it's one thing, guys, to uh, to to tell the authorities back in Iowa once you're living in Texas, you know. I'm not going to have anything to do with, uh, you know, I'm not going to have anything to do with you, you know, see you later. But then she's going to make the terrible mistake of coming back to Iowa after the charges are dropped. She could have stayed down in Texas. She was starting to go to nursing school and, uh, you know, she could have uh, got a divorce and uh, moved on. And uh, it would have been a lot harder for him to, um, you know, show up and uh, ruin her life in Texas. Uh, Yeah. The the question I was trying to ask... um, is why he was arrested in this instance. What did he do to her? Oh, in the third instance, um, that was the situation. I'm, memory serves that, uh, that he was holding her captive in the house, and, uh, and and one of her friends was trying to help her break free and, and again, start a new life in Texas. Uh, and and, uh, and the friend goes to the house, and, um, and nobody's answering the door. And the, the friend knows for sure absolutely that Dixie's in the house with the kids. She, the friend gets the sheriff's department. They come out to the house and uh, eventually find a key um, on the property. And, uh, you know, and everybody goes in the house and they find that Scott had uh, had barricaded Dixie inside, uh, I think, one of the bedroom closets along with her kids. Oh, my and God. She had, she had a couple of black eyes at that point. One of her eyes was pretty uh, bloody at that point in time. So uh, she, was um, also but, uh, she was also tied up. Um, I, she, I'm trying to remember if she was on that occasion. I know she, yeah, it was, I'm pretty sure it was either that occasion or, 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 or yeah, one of those other arrests. It's hard to sometimes remember which, yeah. so you know, which time it was because there were so many of them. But, so uh, let, me, yeah. let me recap here. He has his wife and the kids barricaded in a closet. He's beat the crap out of her. She's got black eyes, bloody eyes, won't let anybody in. The guy's obviously batshit crazy. 
And that's where I was well, going with this. Yeah. She goes yeah. back with him. Well, and, and, she and I goes remember, back too, to she him. testified to this at her trial, but, uh, but when he first looks out, he, he, uh, he peeked out the window behind the, um, behind the curtains, and he saw the cops out there. And he whispers, so he didn't want to be too loud, but he whispers, he's like, did you call the cops? You know, and she's like, no, no, I didn't, because it's the truth. She didn't. It was one of her friends that knew that she was still in that house and was trying to get out of uh, Iowa to help her uh, to help her break free. And uh, and the friend was worried that she might be dead. So that's why the friend called the police and got the police to come out there to try to rescue her, uh, which they did. So well, if she would have, as you said, if she would have just stayed away, if she would have stayed in Texas and not gone back. Now, I'm sure there are psychologists out there who could explain this to me, but I don't get why the hell she would go back to this guy after that. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that's really, I think, the, the, the second worst decision that she made in the whole case, uh, Burl. And, uh, yeah, again, Texas and Iowa aren't exactly, uh, um, you know, right next to each other, a 10-minute drive up the road. So she's in Texas. She's already there. And uh, what possesses her to go back to him? Um, I remember one of his sister, or one of her Dixie's sisters, I think, testified at her trial and said that, that she didn't have any contact with Dixie then over the next year because she was so pissed off that Dixie had actually gone back to uh, to Iowa to hang to get oh, back yeah, together I mean, with this like, loser. Don't bother complaining anymore. I mean, we've you know you decided to go back to him. There's some payoff for her in there somewhere. She's getting something out of this. You know, well, that, that brings us to his inheritance. Oh, there's inheritance. Is there inheritance, John? Well, that yeah, that was a key uh, that was a key issue uh, in this whole case, guys. And uh, and uh, when um, when Dixie again had moved in with with Scott as a as a as a teenager, um, Scott's mother and. Um, Stepfather, um, you know, had had a decent uh, decent life and uh, you know and, and and decent amount of money. So when when Scott's mother passes away, when she dies around 1994, Scott inherits this uh, this ranch, which had uh, was a two acre property in the middle of the town, and uh, but also there was about 150 thousand uh, dollars in uh, in uh, mutual funds uh, and. Um, and that actually quickly grew uh, to about 180,000 uh, within a couple of years. So, so Dixie and Scott have about 180,000 uh, dollars um, um, in mutual funds. That uh, you know that, and then what's going to happen over the next four or five years? Scott's not going to work at all because he's just going to be hanging around, uh, you know, tinkering with his uh, with his cars. Then they're going to live off of these mutual funds and uh, and drain this account. To the point where it's going to go from the one hundred and seventy-seven thousand dollars in nineteen ninety-eight to about uh, um, ten dollars or so oh, by two thousand two, and that's when uh, the financial advisor gives a call to Dixie uh, to say, "Hey, you better not be using this account anymore, otherwise you're going to be overdrawing the funds." So, what did she do then? Oh, gee, sorry. Well, that's. That that could be a, a, a possible motivation for the murderer. That's at least with the, when the case goes to trial, the prosecutor well, felt so, that way, get, Burl. So she'll get the uh, the last ten bucks. Well, the thinking was that at that point in time, Scott's no longer of any use to her. Um, he was uh, she was willing to put up with the abuse uh, all those years beforehand. That's what the prosecutor Chuck Bellman is going to argue when this case goes to trial. 
But when the money runs dry, when there's no money left to, um, for Dixie, that's when she decides, uh, you know, that Scott's uh, no longer uh, worth keeping alive at that point in time. I might tend to agree with her. But then again, um, it's, <laughs> it's certainly, well, again, she she stayed with him all those years that, uh, you know, that they had the, that they were flushed with cash. But again, um, He's just a jerk. He's an abusive guy. And, and then you get to the point where now they're having major, major money troubles to the point where, you know, they have no money left. He doesn't have a job. He's refusing to even look for work. And she just found out right before this guy. She's pregnant again. That she was pregnant with the third child. Yeah, exactly. She's pregnant with the third child. About that. Well, it sounds like he's, A, a complete jerk. Two, she is a very complex creature. I cannot fathom her. She's both hooked into an abusive relationship with uh, some uh, cash register bells going off at the same time. Uh, apparently, she doesn't grasp that there's a world out there bigger than, than what she's used to, even though she goes to Texas. This is the thing that the part that really boggles my mind is her returning all the way from Texas back to be with him. How much loot was left when she comes back? Was it sufficient to make it worthwhile to get the crap beat out of her just to have that money? My guess is no, Burl. Um, I, again, if they were if, if they were at one hundred and seventy-seven thousand and ninety-eight or so, and it's two thousand two now, is when the murder is going to happen. Um, I'm guessing that there could have been more than ten to twenty grand. Uh, um, I remember she testified that you know she was writing about three or four thousand dollars a month uh, in checks between uh, the mortgage payment and bills and stuff. But uh, so safe to say, there could not have been more than uh, you know fifteen twenty thousand, if that. Um, at the point she would have returned from Texas to uh, Did anyone to ask her why the hell she came back? Well, yeah, that's what she she testified to that uh, when she was on trial for the murder, and you know, and she said she wanted her family to be whole again. That she, you know, that she, you know, that uh, it was her and the kids and uh, the two kids at that point in time, and uh, and that that Scott was the missing uh, component. Uh, you know, part of the family. Well, um, I guess, you know, as they say, that whatever you become used to becomes normal. Mm-hmm. And the abuse that she was having to her must be normal. And she wanted a normal family life. I mean, that's, that's the only guy that she had ever been with, uh, you know, for all of those years, too. There was no allegations in this case on either side of anybody, you know, uh, you know running off and... Uh, um, you know, having an affair or anything like that. Uh, although, ironically, once Scott is dead and nobody in the town knows where he's at, you know, she's she's willing to uh, um, start dating this Jeff Duty fella. And uh, and again, from law enforcement standpoint, there have been no filings of a divorce or anything like that by Dixie or Scott. Uh, uh, and that just again plays more into the cop's mind that something bad may have yeah. happened to Scott. Yeah. Hey, hey, look, I'm stooping this new guy. <laughs> Come well, watch. Well, she was doing a lot of other bizarre things, like selling off all of his possessions. What's so bizarre right. about that? What's yeah, that is. That? Well, and and that's that's again one of those things that uh, that didn't make a lot of sense for uh, for for the cops uh, um, and people that knew Scott because they knew that uh, that if, if there's anything in life that he valued, I mean, it wasn't his wife and it was not his kids. Obviously. It was his tools. 
and uh, and his uh, you know rusted out uh, you know auto and stuff like that. So uh, so she starts selling off uh, you know his uh, his tools and a couple of his uh, classic cars. Um, and uh, and I remember one of the farm tractors and uh, in one of the area residents even was uh, um, a little taken aback and a little. He really didn't know if he should take the, uh, you know, take the, the farm tractor. In fact, he even makes a remark that he'll just keep it on his property, you know, in an open spot. So when Scott comes back to town, he can have the, the tractor back. Yeah, well, good luck waiting yeah. for that to happen. Well, and Dixie just told him, you know, just point blank. She's like, he's not coming back. You know, he's not going to come back um, because she was right. He was already dead. <laughs> yeah, he was already dead uh, for about three or four months at that point in time. A brother after you. Oh. Do you have fun with this one? <laughs> have fun with this one? No, seriously. As a, as a journalist and writer, you know, this oh, is what you do. Well, well yeah, I, I, I did uh, to a degree. I mean, it was really fascinating from a lot of different respects, though, guys. Uh, the, uh, the, and the intrigue of, you know, how in the world, you know, this this had happened and, and happened under everybody's nose and nobody so in town, well, yeah, you know, knew that Scott Shanahan was missing for 14 months. I mean, the thing I keep thinking about, guys, is that if it wasn't for the sheriff's office finally getting a call about a year after the fact, finally, somebody in the town says, hey, you might want to start looking around for Scott Shanahan because uh, we haven't seen him for a year or so, and his truck is still in his driveway. Um who knows? He may he may very well still be in that bedroom to this day now, eleven or twelve years later, and uh, you know, and you know, things are still the same and stuff like that. Uh, it's just uh, it's the it's the open was, the open window kind of bugs me, John. That you know they let that go for so long, and I mean you know the turf as well yeah. as any of us. And there's an open window in a house in in that kind of a situation. I mean, isn't there some sort of an alarm that goes off? Someplace somewhere that longer than four months does it take? I don't know. The, the, uh, I mean, that's a good point because obviously the guy that was the meter reader, he doesn't call the. Uh, to my knowledge, he doesn't go to the police. You know that the, the first day he sees that thing, or the month afterwards. Uh, um, he, from what I, from what I gather, just kind of kept that. Uh, you know, inside or, or didn't say anything to anybody immediately. Um, well, I, I get so, that. Uh, I, I do it yeah. I can to keep the meter reader away. <laughs> I, I have done all kinds of things as meter readers. Yeah, do you change the wires so it runs backwards? No, I, I, I chain up a wild a wild dingo to mine. <laughs> Was the that other the, thing, the wild dingo yep. stuff? Yeah. <laughs> Don't go to the wild dingo material, okay. please. Yeah. <laughs> The other thing that you have to figure, too, though, is that there may have been, like, the case you were talking about in Skidmore, Missouri. There may, part of me thinks that maybe somebody in town, or at least a couple people that knew this couple pretty well, may have had some suspicions that something bad may have happened to him, but just didn't want to go to the police oh, and say sure. anything. Hey, John, 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 I like you a lot, so don't talk about parts of you. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Okay, my whole self. Uh, Your whole self, yeah. <laughs> um, I but, think uh, you're absolutely correct. Because everyone knew that guy was a first-class jerk. And they were happy to have him gone. And they weren't too eager to have her get in trouble for it. I tell you what, I think uh, our producer is giving us the deep-rooted signal. We're going to take a 60-second break to look for the uh, proper gauge of uh, shells for the shotgun. <laughs> what? And we'll be right oh, back man. on True Crime Uncensored.
Hagan, the gay guy from Outlaw Radio. If you own a cell phone, and I know you do because you probably got Grinder on there, but it's time for you to add another app. That app would be for Outlaw Radio through the courtesy of RadioLoyalty.com. My suggestion is that you upload that app for free, aren't you? Yes, totally free app. In order to be able to listen to us, the Demons of Decadence, every Saturday afternoon from 3 to 6 Pacific Standard Time or Pacific Dale Time. And you'll have the opportunity to listen to us smoke and interrupt each other, which we do a really good job of doing. So once again, RadioLoyalty.com to pick up your free app of Outlaw Radio. Once again, this is Frank. So get off a grinder and get on to Outlaw. Nice. The legendary Burl Bear around here. They call me Uncle Crazy just because they're rude. Yeah, <laughs> or accurate. Yeah, it's accurate. <laughs> or accurate, one of the two. I also write true crime books and show up on TV. In fact, I've been on TV a lot lately. So much that I turn on the TV and I go, God, there I am. Uh, <laughs> did a bunch of Deadly Sins episodes with Darren Cavanoke. That was nice. They keep rerunning those this last week, along with ones from Deadly Women and Deadly This and Crooked Bat. Uh, we uh, wrote point. some books about them, you know, so you can buy books based on some of those cases. Such yes, as, you can. Yeah, such as uh, Jealousy, Sex, and Murder in Los Gatos, California. Every time Darren Cavanoke is on television, I get a dollar. Well, good. Okay. So uh, let's have Darren rerun a lot so Howard can get a few dollars. $19 this week. Hey, $19 this week. Good for you, Howard. Uh, I get money, too, because people buy my books when they see me on TV. So it all works out well for everybody. And so while you're at it, uh, pick up Man Overboard, Count of the Resurrection of Phil Champagne, and the latest issue of Serial Killer Quarterly, every serial killer's favorite magazine, which has a big full page about how wonderful we are. Which we are, by the way. Let's get John back. Please. And I'm still pissed there's no picture of me. True crime uncensored. <laughs> yes, you were saying? With Burl Bear? Yes. And? Come on, you can do it. Come on, come on. So happy to be here. Hey, Matt, push the button. <laughs> Jesus. Radio 102. And Howard Lapidus. <laughs> Face right over there. Yeah, and uh, featuring Mark C.G. Boyer. There, that he, who's there you blown, are right there. He, he's unloaded all of his material already. Yeah. Well, yeah. Oh. yeah, you know, John's sitting there waiting to be spoken with, and 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 I like John a lot, and went through this case, and you know, we pretty much have, have exhausted the I'm case. Exhausted. It's Dixie's we, we, last stand. We yeah. better mention the name of the book. I, I want to. I want to. Uh, let's sell the book because it's a damn good book, and and the case is damn interesting, and the open window is just fascinating. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm fascinated. And now and then we're going to get back to talk about the NFL draft. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. You have a one-track mind. You're not going to ask me about the fifth-round quarterback or something like okay. that, are Let's you plug the book real fast here before Howard goes berserk on his sports stuff. John Farrick, Dixie's last stand. Was it murder or self-defense from Wild Blue Press? Hey, crime, and, and, and let's go around the room. Seriously. Was it, Burrow, what do you think? Murder, self-defense? Yes. Uh, yeah, I know. What? Murder. Mark? Uh, I, I'm with murder. Okay, John. I go murder too, guys. After covering the trial, now when I when I you you brought it before about was this case really interesting as a journalist, and absolutely it was. So going into the, the the case, going into the trial, 
not knowing what all the facts were as far as in the bedroom and how that room had been preserved and everything like that, I, I presumed, as most journalists in the public did, that this was a definitely a self-defense kind of shooting and stuff like that because Dixie was going to testify in her own defense or her, her lawyer made it clear, you know, she had a great story to tell about, uh, you know, um, uh, about this, uh, about the struggle, this fight, and, you know, she, you know, and uh, she, you know, um, shot him, uh, you know, as he was coming at her. So, so it seemed going into the trial that this was, uh, you know, she had a good chance of uh, being found not guilty of the crime. Um, there was uh, a very uh, well-publicized case uh, some years ago with uh, Francine Hughes. Uh, people might remember it as the burning bed, which was made into a telepic with Farrah, Farrah Fawcett. Fawcett. Farrah, yeah, Farrah Fawcett played it in the Right. They, uh, in, in that instance, uh, after, after a lifetime of abuse, she takes and bundles the kids up, sends them outside, pours gasoline on the bed, sets her husband and the house on fire, gets in the car and drives directly to the police station and turns herself in. If so I'm waiting for that to happen at my house. Uh, <laughs> you're going to turn yourself in, Howard? No. Oh. No, 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 no. You have it wrong, Mark. Oh. So. They're going to turn the dingo in. If Dixie, if Dixie had gone directly to the police that night, do you think, what, were the, what do you think the outcome would be? Well, I think she would be free no matter what by this point in time. But uh, even the, the sheriff and the, the deputy sheriff had told me, for the, you know, in, in the aftermath, because I worked on this book, that they feel that she would got little to no time in jail for this crime. Um, and um, that, that was the one thing that troubled them because they had worked with her over several over all those arrests and they knew her, you know, and Scott from uh, just the small town nature of uh, Shelby County, Iowa. But, uh, but yeah, I think you're right uh, um, that... Uh, if, if she would have gone to the police uh, the very next day, or even a week or so later, possibly, and said, "Look, um, I think that uh, yeah, I don't think she would have been charged with uh, first-degree murder." Um, um, but again, it's just the uh, essentially the lies keep compounding, and uh, yeah, but, she's but, but, interviewed. Hey, John, you can't blow somebody the back of somebody's head off, and it's. You know, first of all, coming from behind, the self-defense thing isn't holding up for me. Right. Uh, you can't do that. It's, oh, you can't. You're not supposed to do that. No, no. You're not supposed to do that and get away with it. You're a bad, bad girl. Are you doing the bad girl stuff now? Yeah. yeah. Well, next to the dingo is next. Yeah. Bad dingo, yeah. <laughs> no, it's a good dingo. No, and no, all, you can't do that. You know, I don't care if you walk to the, you know, you blow the guy's head off and walk down the street and say, I did it. And everybody knows that the guy's a schmuck. And everybody knows that he's abusive. And everybody knows this guy, bad, bad, bad man. And everybody happy. Still, when you get to the books, it says you can't do that. And that's really what prosecutor Charlie Thoman, I thought, did a phenomenal job of stressing when this case went to the to the trial, guys. Uh, because uh, it was the evidence was clear that, that uh, Scott Shanahan had taken a, uh, a shotgun shell and the wadding was still in the back of his skull 14 months after the fact. So he, um, the prosecutor, just really felt that the self-defense argument was... Uh, uh, it was just a bunch of crap and garbage. Yeah, don't, and, uh, John, and, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not on his side, but I'm not on the jury, and it's not. In my opinion doesn't count here, and it doesn't matter. What does matter is the law of the land. And you, you know, if somebody was to blow my head off, and, and by the way, I'm not a nice guy. 
Uh, you know. No argument from anyone in the room. No, no, no I'm, uh-huh. I'm the first to tell you. I've uh, come to terms yeah. with that. A lot of therapy, and I find out, hey, you're not that nice. Oh, okay, thank you. Here's another $200. Yeah. But, but <laughs> that's, that's my psychiatrist, you know. Oh, yeah. God. Uh, something else that's But I think you're right, though. Yeah, the, you're, you're right about the shotgun to the back of the head. Uh, I, I, I felt uh, really um, work to the prosecutor's advantage when this case finally goes to trial, guys. Well, yeah. one of the other things that fascinated me is that she was given another out prior to trial. What are you talking about? But she could have pled down, couldn't she? Yeah, she could have pled, uh, I'm trying to remember, it was voluntary manslaughter, and uh, and the absolute most she would have received was 10 years, but in all likelihood, just based on uh, the plea agreement and, uh, you know, and uh, good behavior stuff, she was probably looking at getting out of, of prison um, after serving two to three years. Um, and, uh, and it was a deal that her own attorney had worked out with the prosecutor before the trial. The prosecutor did not want to offer any plea bargain whatsoever. The judge it, it kind of uh, forced his hand, you know, and, and told him more or less that, uh, you know, that he expected a, a plea bargain would be offered to the defendant. So he went ahead and did it. Dixie's uh, attorney then let several days pass and, uh, you know, doesn't get back to the prosecutor. So he's wondering what the hell happened here. And, uh, and lo and behold, Dixie made the decision on her own against her attorney's advice and decides to uh, all or nothing and she feels you know that she's going to be found not guilty when this case goes to a trial in her account she was, she was mistaken my favorite part of this is his boyfriend bo- uh, guy there you know the boyfriend uh, let's pretend he didn't know anything Let's pretend he has no nostrils, okay? <laughs> Let, let's pretend this guy is just dumb as dirt, okay? I, I just want to be there when they tell him, oh, by the way. <laughs> by the way, there's a corpse uh, rotting uh, in the other room. You're kind of in the guest room doing the sex stuff with her um, because, and then he gets, he finds out. And I, it would just be funny. I just, you know, I just had that picture of this guy. <laughs> and, and so, and from what I know, last I, last I remember the authorities telling me as I finished up the book, he is the one that supposedly is living in that house now. Um, you know, Dixie's in prison, Scott's dead, so uh, so he's the guy that's, uh, that, that's well, got he's, the murder he's house the, now. He's the only guy that uh, within the, the state of Iowa that would buy that house because he's aromatically uh, 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 <laughs> attracted to this. No, he's attracted to the smell of this house, obviously. It had nothing to do with Nothing the, but happy memories. I mean, this guy is dumb as, as a clog of dirt ball. What a he moron. never would. Uh, that was the one thing he I don't think to this day you're talking 12 years after the fact I don't think he's ever done an interview with any uh, any news media outlet I think, ever I don't so, think this guy yeah. can get two words uh, stretched together to even try and form a sentence yeah I mean how do you get a guy you just don't never mind he's he lived me. in that house yeah he's been staying there five or six months it's a ranch house. This isn't exactly, uh, you know, Shaquille O'Neal's mansion or something like that. Uh, it's not that big of a house. And, and apparently he just uh, buys Jeez. the story or that's the story he sticks with that, uh, that he, you know, he, he had no idea that, that Dixie's well, husband well, who, who you know, actually, dead in the other room. Who actually owns the home? She does? Well, I think she, yeah, I think she had, uh, yeah, I think it yeah, went to her after... Uh, so well, she, she's just question. she's letting boyfriend man uh, stay there. 
That's what. Yeah, that's. Yeah. What does this guy do I believe for that's a, the case. Yeah. What does this guy do for a living other than us probably somehow subsidizing him? <laughs> well, I think he actually worked up the road in. Uh, I, I know I put it. I'm pretty sure I put it in the book, but he worked in. Uh, I think he was from Ida Grove, a town about 40 miles or, away, and uh, he worked at a. Uh, at a at a big uh, manufacturing plant uh, um, at that point in time. I don't know what he's doing now. Do you doing have any nowadays, idea how but, she uh, met him? Um, yes, actually, uh, um, they had, uh, and I t- I put this in the book, uh, so there's going to be no reason for anybody to buy the book uh, by the time we're all done. Oh, no, 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 no. buy the book. Don't then. worry, we'll <laughs> sell the book. Hey, John. No, that's okay. Like, no, that's a good story. I'm glad you brought that up, actually, Pearl, because uh, that's kind of a funny story. It was one of those neighbors, um, a lady named... Uh, Walls, Mark and Marcy Carl, that lived uh, nearby Dixie's property, and uh, they had invited, they had a barbecue over at the, their their property, I think on Memorial Day weekend, 2003. So so they had, uh, Jeff Duty was a friend of one of the neighbors then, and Dixie stopped over there that day, and apparently those two hit it off then, and uh, and the rest is history. D- you didn't mean to say hit it off, right? <laughs> they, they wound up stupid with Wild abandoned. Oh, I didn't say that. <laughs> Brandon the Wild or something. Yeah, please. It's it's just he knows how to pick him. That guy. No, the guy. Hey, look at the guy. He's he's got the free house for how long? <laughs> well, you, yeah, ten years or so. Yeah. Oh, it's uh, two thousand four, two thousand yeah, yeah two thousand four. So it's when good. this happened. Yeah, the guy's. How doing long until she's out? Um, well, she's eligible now. Um, every as of about a, as of last year, she can come up for parole. Um, go before the pro board uh, every year now from here on out in Iowa. And last year was the first opportunity then after she had served 10 years. And uh, and last year the pro board rejected her application. Uh, and uh, not, it looked like it was a pretty convincing fashion. Did, does she well. have a swastika on her forehead, by any chance? Oh, come on. Well, no, she, the, uh, uh, she looks actually pretty normal. I put her. I actually put one of her prison photos that the state of Iowa had given me uh, um, to use. So it's in, it's I actually put one book. of her prison photos in there to show what she looks like nowadays. Let's do this, okay, uh, Burl? What? What's the name of the book? The name of the book is Dixie's Last Stand from Wild Blue Press. And who wrote the sucker? Uh, <laughs> John did. John Farrick who also wrote that other great book. F-E-R-A-K. Yeah. There you go. It's uh, got a good cover, too. Welcome to Defiance. John Farrick. Dixie's last stand. You know, one more appearance and you're a regular here. <laughs> uh, do you think the, the jury uh, understood the ramifications of a murder two conviction? I I think some did, but but some didn't because it's uh, in the aftermath. I know some of the jurors were interviewed years later, and they pointed out and, and, and they claimed that uh, they didn't know the the sentencing because again the judge the, the instructions didn't say you know if you find her guilty this is what her, her range of sentences um, could be um, they didn't get into any of that it was just along the lines of if you you know if it's premeditated you know then it's murder one and uh, you know and, and, and two uh, was a little bit different they found her guilty of all you know he just murdered two yeah and uh, and that carried uh, a, a mandatory 50 year prison sentence at that point in time yeah, what's so the deal? I, uh, what, what is your feeling on this whole thing with a mandatory prison sentence I think that that's kind of garbage actually Burrow um, because I, I can tell you from from Nebraska where I was the reporter as well and you know what bloody lies and covered that case even in that case the two killers from Wisconsin Fester and Reed when they played when they pled down to murder two which is the same charge Dixie was found guilty of the judge could have sentenced Fester and Reed to a range of 20 years 
to life. And, you know, and whatever you give them, if you give them 20, they could have only, you know, they could have got out in 10 years. So, so just an hour away, um, you have a totally different stru- uh, sentencing structure in Iowa where the judge has no um, influence at all over the, the sentencing. And uh, in a case like Dixie's, clearly the judge would have given her um, a lesser sentence than just a straight 50-year prison sentence, which is what she got. Yeah, I'm not, I, I'm not I crazy about that. I found that just a bit either. obsessive. Just one at a time. Okay, so yeah. I no Thank you, Howard. Yeah, I, I, did not, I do know this, John, that you've mentioned Burl's name 17 times. That's because he's smart. I, I've mentioned your name six times. <laughs> you haven't mentioned me or Mark at all. Which is appropriate. <laughs> Which Howard, is, Howard, Howard, how many more times do I need to say, uh, <laughs> say your name here? <laughs> <laughs> I'm good now. You're good now? Yeah. yeah no, no, okay. I'm good now. I feel good. I, I feel a tad left out. <laughs> Say Mark, 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 Mark. <laughs> Mark. Okay. Well, Howard, let me get a couple more words in, okay? Is that right, Howard? Uh, I want to catch up. Uh, I, I can't have that guy uh, leading the, the fray with 17 uh, mentions of his there name, even All if right. he is legendary. So. <laughs> he is, he, he is legendary. That he is. Yeah, get a couple more Howard and Barks in there. Dixie's Last Stand, true crime feature from Wild Blue Press, my currently one of my favorite publishing companies. But, but written by an actual journalist, and, and that's that that's why. I, and, and you know how this works. I don't read. I don't decide to read the book until about halfway through the show. Yeah. And halfway through the show, I did decide I'm going to. Um, I'm definitely going to uh, buy the book. And so at least and you got one sale out of this. Oh, there's no question. No, this this one. <laughs> this one, I, I really believe this is going to be fun to read. Also, yeah. I download it for free. Oh, you're, 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 why do you say things like that? We got the guy right on the phone right over here. The guy right over here. He's right over here. Yeah. You have to sign up for a trial subscription. Yeah. I'm going to rob you, John. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you said my days of writing true crime books are probably going to be over after this one, guys. It was uh, nice of being on your show twice. So. We Sorry, I couldn't make it to three to be a regular. We can't wait to have, we can't wait to have you back. Seriously. Thank you. Thanks, yeah. John. Another dynamic show. He's great. Hey, bro. What's next? What's, What's next? next is What's I try next? to break my fever, and you guys get to play radio with Magic, Matt Allen, and the Demons of Decadence on Outlaw Radio. Oh, God, I'm sweating like a pig. <laughs>